Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. You greet, right? It's so good. The meet and greet is so good that we could just do it all day. Gotta love that. Hey, that shows a lot of love, right? We're a loving group of people here today, so praise God for that. Hey, if you have a Bible, turn with me to two places this morning, John chapter 18 and Matthew chapter 26. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll make sure you get one. Two places today, John 18, Matthew 26. And uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, we want to welcome you. We're so glad you're here with us this morning. There is, as Brian said, it's in the seat back pocket in front of you, a card. It is a connect card. If you would fill that out and take it to our uh, welcome center, um, we have a, a little um, packet of information we'd like to give you about uh, who we are and all. And also, again, want to remind you that that connect card is also a prayer request card. And uh, again, put prayer requests in. I, we should be flooded every week because we always have something to pray about. You can stick them in the, um, in the offering box in the back right there. And uh, once again, if you're new to Calvary, you might be like, oh, they don't, we don't pass plates or anything. We, we actually put our offering box in the back, and uh, it's between you and the Lord. And, you know, we, we have to point that out sometimes because we did have somebody once say, do you guys not need money or what? You know, well, we, hey, you know what? We really don't because we have the Lord and he provides all things. So that's the way we look at it. Uh, we don't, we're not going to plead for money. Uh, the, it's between you and the Lord. It is the New, ne- New Testament mandate of giving. And so uh, God loves a cheerful giver, and so we want to make you aware of that. Um, John chapter 18, stand with me if you would, please. We're going to take a look at a few verses before we get going this morning. What an incredible passage we have before us. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, we read, When Jesus had spoke these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Father, we come this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, your word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. You need not reminded about that, but we need reminded this morning, Lord, that we come before you and you are about to do a work in us. Your word is going to be presented, Lord. We ask that our hearts are soft we might receive what it is that you would desire to say to us. God, we're here for you. We're here because we want to know you more, Lord. We want to be changed by you. We want to be shaped by you. God, hear our cry this morning. Lord, would you remove the shame and the guilt of our hearts this morning? Would you remove us to a place of repentance, Lord, that we might just be renewed in our spirits this morning? God, would you strengthen us this morning? as you strengthened your son in the garden that we speak of this morning. God, we ask that you would have your way in us. We humbly come, Lord. We ask your spirit to move now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. The title of my message this morning is The Tale of Two Gardens uh, because as we read here, Jesus is entering a garden. It is going to be again his journey to redemption. It was through a garden, just as human life began in a garden. There is an incredible parallel here. Adam, who was raised from the dust, you know, he was planted in the Garden of Eden. And it was there that the Lord said, you can, you can eat of anything, subdue the land, you know, uh, populate the earth and all, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was a requirement on his behalf for, listen, Obedience. He was required to obey in the garden. God gave him the capacity and the ability to obey his word, and yet he left, listen, a choice to him. What will you do with my command? Will you obey or will you disobey? And of course, we know that Adam disobeyed the Lord, and thus death entered the world. And Adam was then kicked out of the garden because it was defiled, the fall of mankind, not just affecting Adam, but all of humanity. And here we find the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, 
He is entering a garden of redemption here. It's called Gethsemane. It means olive press. It will come at great cost, folks. But this garden will become the means of salvation for everyone who believes. It is an incredible parallel of these two gardens, and obedience is the fruit of the Spirit here. You must obey the Lord. We see here Jesus Christ is faced with a choice as well in the garden, and he too must be obedient to the Word of God. Uh, thus, we begin with considering Jesus as he leaves the upper room here and he enters the Garden of Gethsemane. If you've been with us, you know that the, the previous several hours, Jesus has been in an upper room with his, with his disciples, and they have washed feet, and they have a fellowship together. They have shared a meal and all, and, and, and after that, it says that they sang a hymn, and then they went out. And that's where we pick it up here in John chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden with which he and his disciples entered. Jesus is, is leaving the comfort of the upper room now, and he is making his way to the cross. It will be by way of the garden. In short order, the disciples are going to be scattered. Jesus told them all of these things. He said, listen, you will be scattered, and I will be apprehended. I will be in chains in just a few hours as he would leave the upper room there. But listen, in order for Jesus to enter the garden, there is an obstacle before him. It is called the Brook Kidron. Now, if you've been to Israel, you've seen pictures of Israel, you, you know from the Mount of Olives is directly across from the Temple Mount. So you have the, the Temple Mount here, you have the Mount of Olives. And between those two things is a valley. And that valley is the Valley of Kidron. And there is a brook that runs. It's seasonal. But there is a brook that run, would run during this time down the valley there. Now, this brook is an interesting brook. It's, you know, a brook is a small stream, seasonal stream, uh, something like that. Uh, probably this brook was, its water source was the temple. You see, this brook was, uh, unlike many other brooks, it was a carrier of blood. You see, the temple mount there, that was located right across the Mount of Olives, they would sacrifice animals there. You know this. This particular night, so this brook would always, the, the channels would come out of the temple and they would flow down into the brook Kidron. That's pretty interesting considering Jesus is about to enter a garden which, which he will become the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He'd crossed this brook many, many times, but I guarantee you the time he comes to the bank of this brook this time, he looks down at the waters, and it's a stark reminder of what he's about to do. He is about to shed his blood for the sin of the world. Now, the, the word kidron in the Greek, it means gloomy, murky, dark. And the reason it means that is because of the blood that would flow through there. Jesus standing on the bank there sees the gloom of the garden that sits before him. And we know that it's gloomy because Jesus enters, and as he enters this garden, it says that he is sorrowful and troubled. Jesus stands before him a choice. What will I do? Will I cross the brook or will I flee? This is the first obstacle of many obstacles that Jesus has to face to go to the cross. And, of course, we know that he moves courageously over this brook into the Garden of Gethsemane. It says, and uh, turn with me real quick, well, I want to pick up the account in Matthew 26 because it adds detail to some things that, that John doesn't record for us. And so we're going to be going back and forth between John 18 and Matthew 26 to, to fill in the blanks of some of the things that are happening here. So here we find Jesus not cowering from his call. Now there is an application for you and I here. That, you know, there's going to be obstacles in your call, Christian. There are going to be things that are going to maybe trouble you, cause sorrow in your heart, but that doesn't mean that you deter away from the call. Oftentimes, we walk by sight and not by faith. Oh, this certainly can't be God because it's, uh, I'm being affected negatively. Jesus knows this is the will of God, and it's going to affect him negatively. The reality is... 
is God accomplishes his purposes, you know, and he doesn't, he, he care. Don't, don't misunderstand me. He cares about how you feel about it, but there are going to be difficulties that come across, and he is going to strengthen you to get across the brook, if you will. He wants you to move forward courageously in your call, and there are going to be all kinds of fears that will try and stop you. But you have to consider, will I bow down to my fear, or will I bow down to Jesus? That's the question. Jesus obviously moves forward. We're going to pick it up in Matthew 26, 36 there. It says, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my trouble is, or my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. The Garden of Gethsemane was most probably a private garden of maybe the follower, uh, a friend of Jesus's. Uh, some suggest that he is perhaps the one that provided the donkey that Jesus rode, across, rode down into Jerusalem with. Don't know. But, you know, most probably it was a private garden. It was probably walled, fenced in. It probably had a gate. Now, if you go to the, uh, Jerusalem today, they will take you to a garden very similar to that description. It is a stone-walled garden, and there is a gate there. It's private. You enter, and you have to make an appointment to go. I'm not sure if Jesus did. Perhaps he did. I don't know. But uh, you make an appointment to go in there. And as you enter into this garden, it's beautiful. There are trees that, you know, carbon dating, don't know. don't know if it's accurate, so I'm not going to quote it. But they are old. They're very old. And, in fact, you walk through this garden, and you can see these olive trees there. And you can imagine Jesus and his disciples in something very similar to this, praying. It was, don't know if it's the original Garden of Gethsemane, but the idea is there. Jesus, it says there that he left his disciples at the entrance. He left some behind. He said, you guys stay here. Now, that's interesting to me. There's a couple reasons perhaps that was. Maybe, maybe Jesus said, stand guard at the entrance, you know, while I go pray. I perhaps think that it has something to do with the maturity of these believers versus the three that he takes with him. There are three that Jesus is pouring into as he's going, and he is giving them everything. He's giving them a glimpse of his glory to the point that he was transfigured before them. Peter, James, and John. You might think, why did he call them? Perhaps it's because they were his the ones that he would trust the most, that he would pour himself into. They were the inner circle, those disciples that Jesus was preparing to disciple the disciples of Jesus even. There have to be disciplers of disciples. And Jesus said, I'm going to take you three and I'm going to pour into you more so that you can pour into them and that they can then pour into somebody else. That's how it works in the body of Christ. You were called to disciple somebody. So he takes these three in and they go into the garden and it's there that as he enters that he becomes sorrowful and troubled. Now, I believe that these three are in for a treat. They're in for a, 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 an incredible teaching on how to deal with trouble and sorrow. Anybody ever need a lesson like that in your own life where you need to understand how to deal with the sorrow and trouble that comes with life? We don't, we don't have sorrow and trouble. We're Christians. Christians don't ever have sorrow and trouble. You know, we have Christ. <laughs> exactly. We have Christ, therefore we have sorrow and trouble. He said that to us, didn't he? In this life, you will have tribulation. You're going to have sorrow. You're going to have trouble. So it's important that you hear what I have to say regarding how to deal with it. I think Jesus here takes his confidence, his confidants, his friends, and he brings them into a place where they are going to see Jesus Christ become sorrowful and troubled. I don't think the other eight could have handled that. There are things that some people can't handle, and there's things that some people can. Now, I would say it's important that you have a Peter, James, and John in your life that you can be transparent about what's going on in your life. Jesus takes these three and he's very transparent. Hey, dudes, I am incredibly sorrowful. Now, can you believe, you know, you're thinking, wait a second, you're the son of God. You're sorrowful? Whoa, that would maybe freak you out, maybe derail you in your walk with the Lord. But Jesus is being transparent with his friends. And he's saying, listen, I am 
incredibly sorrowful, even to the point of death. I am about to die, and I am taking you with me. Do you have a Peter? Do you have a James? Do you have a John in your life that you can be transparent with? I hope you do. It's important that you do. I have a Peter, James, and John in my life that I bear my soul to, that I tell them my issues of my life, my struggles, because I need that in my life. The Lord put my, those friends in my life to help me, and they're there for me, and I hope that you know that too. If you are trying to protect yourself from allowing anybody into that, then there is going to be sin in your life that will stay there forever. You see, we have to be transparent. And of course, you can say, well, I'm going to be transparent to the Lord. Do you think Jesus was being transparent to God? Probably, but he also had some other people with him. Listen, God calls us as a family to unite and to help one another. It says, Peter said, confess your sins one to another. Now, be careful that you don't confess your sins to the wrong one another. Because they'll tell everybody else what's going on in your life. You have to have a Peter, James, and a John. You feel me on that? Find one if you don't have one. The enemy wants to keep you in secret. He wants to keep you in the dark so that you can hide in your shame and your sorrow. But the Lord says be transparent with somebody that he might bring healing in your life. It's important that we have that. Jesus was sorrowful. And troubled. Now, he promised his disciples that they too were going to experience this. Just last chapter, John chapter 16 and verse 22, he said, So also you have sorrow now, but I will again, I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Now, there is a misnomer in the church today that I think needs to be addressed, and that is this. That if you are, that you, you know, Christians don't experience sorrow and trouble. If you are, then you've allowed something to uh, rob your joy. Jesus is fully a joy here. But joy is not happiness. I don't think Jesus has a smile on his face as he walks into this garden troubled and sorrowful. I do believe that there's a realness with Christ here where he is allowing, he's exposing his disciples to the reality of what joy really looks like. Because joy isn't, Outward happiness, where I'm bubbly and I'm saying, you know, that's called fake. You know, we're really good at that in church because we don't want anybody to know what's going on in our life, you know. And so we're like, oh, I don't need prayer. Uh-uh. No, my life is good. Is it really? Or are you just hiding something? You know, you, you may have joy, and that's great, but that doesn't mean you'll be happy. That doesn't mean you'll always have a smile on your face. Joy means that you're going to overcome the difficulty no matter what, and you're going to press forward, and you're going to trust the Lord. Consider it pure joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. For these things produce fruit in your life. Joy is the understanding that there's something on the other side of the trial, and I'm going to move through it no matter what. It's not acting like you're happy when you're not. That's being fake. Jesus is being real. That's what I love about this passage. The Lord could have shielded his sorrow and his trouble from anyone. No one would have known. In fact, I really don't think that his disciples know fully. I don't think they're comprehending what's going on because we'll see here in a moment, they are sleeping when he asks them to pray. Now you think like, Listen, I've been woken up at night with somebody that is sorrowful and troubled and I have prayed with them and I'm not falling asleep, although I may be tired. My heart is hurting for them and I'm in tune with their spirit. I, I know what's going on there and I am diving in there. I am attentive to what's happening. I don't think they fully grasp the situation and yet Jesus tells them, I am sorrowful. They must be thinking, wonder what that means. Listen, trouble and sorrow will come, but don't let it rob your joy because it can. And at that point, you may be stopped dead in your tracks. You may not move forward. The Lord wants us to move forward. That's why he gave us joy, and he told his disciples, they're going to go through difficult times. I'm going to be taken from you, and you're going to be, have an opportunity to have your joy robbed but I'll give you my joy, he says. And Jesus' joy is perfect. 
and it's constant, and it doesn't cease. We need his joy in our life. He tells his disciples here. What I love about this passage, backing up just one second, is that the human, humanity of Christ is displayed in the fact that he feels the way you feel. Don't you, don't you kind of love that God is interacting with you and I in that way? He can say, listen, I can sympathize with you because I've been there. When the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.15, he can sympathize with you. He is a high priest that knows how you feel. He was tempted in all ways, and yet he suffered not, or he, he sinned not. Jesus can relate to you. He understands what sorrow is. He understands what trouble is. And he also understands how to battle it. Matthew uh, Poole, the 17th century theologian said this about sorrow and trouble that Jesus is experiencing. He said the words in the Greek are expressive of the greatest sorrow imaginable. Greatest sorrow imaginable. Like take your sorrow that you experience, you know, when you don't get the new iPhone or whatever it is and then magnify it by like 600,000. That's probably what he's speaking about. R.H. Lenski said, in this pitiful condition... These three disciples see Jesus as they walk on with him. All his power seems to be gone. He is crushed and beaten down and has only one recourse. Prayer to the Father. Prayer to the Father. Jesus was acquainted with sorrow and grief. And yet he knows how to battle it. He says, will you three come with me and will you watch and pray as I go forward? Jesus comes to the Father in prayer when he's dealing with sorrow and trouble. That's how you and I ought to deal with our sorrow and trouble. Listen, sometimes we just try and grin and bear it, don't we? Try and act like it's not existing. Positive confession. It is as I say. How's that work out for you? Not too good. Some of us, listen, there's all kinds of different ways that we try and combat sorrow and trouble, isn't there? But I see one response from Jesus here. It's prayer. He prays. We all know how important prayer is. We're all prayer warriors. We know, we understand that, right? And yet oftentimes, in the most difficult moments in our life, we're prayerless. We are prayerless. And therefore, we are defenseless. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God the Son, gets on his knees and he bows his head to heaven and he says, Lord, here I am. Look at me. I am sorrowful and I am in trouble. And I need your help. Will you help me, Lord? Three times we'll see. Our best weapon against depression and despair, against sorrow and trouble is prayer, Christian. Pray. It's not the last thing that you can do. It's the only thing left to do. Pray. No, it's the first thing Jesus does. He enters this garden. He gets alone with his father and he hits his knees and he spills his guts before God. He says, Lord, this is what's going on in my life. It is the only way to battle this, folks. It's the only way to battle this, that you might be fueled with the Spirit of God in these, these moments, be strengthened, be ministered to, that you might be able to move through the trial with joy, as Jesus does. Listen, you can fool me. You can tell me that you're full of faith, you can tell me that you're valiant in your fight with whatever it is that you're dealing with, and that's great. You fooled me. Who am I? Who cares? You cannot fool God. He sees your heart. He knows what's going on, and he's saying he is ready to act. Do you get the picture? God is, is sort of peeking over. If there were an edge in heaven, he's peeking over the edge of heaven just saying, ask me, ask me, just come to me. And here we are trying to fight the good fight on our own. The Lord wants you to pray to him. The Lord is available for you today. 
He wants you to pray to him. He wants you to make your request known to him. Not because he needs to know, because he already knows. But because he needs you to know that he knows. And he needs to know that he needs you to know that he hears. And he needs you to know that he is acting upon your petition as you come before him. Jesus is a fully man, at the same time fully God, that we see as humanity. How does he battle? Sorrow and trouble, prayer, prayer. He is exceedingly sorrowful, and he asks his disciples then to pray. Moving on in verse 39 of Matthew 36, and going a little farther, he fell to his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found him, them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us, go, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus comes to this garden, and he falls on his face, and he asks the Lord a very simple question. He asks his Father if it's possible that this cup pass from him. But I want you to catch the second part of the prayer. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, this is interesting. Because I think hidden in here we find the, the dichotomy of we all deal with on a daily basis. The sovereignty of God and the will of man. What is the reality when it comes to this? I mean, Jesus Christ is sitting in the garden right here, and he says, here's my request, Father. If there's any other way for this cup to pass from me, then do it. But not as I will, but as you will. Jesus has 100% freedom to do what he wants here, folks. 100% freedom. His request is, Father... Remove the cup. But in obedience to the Father, he says, your will be done. And I find this interesting because this is the same choice Adam was faced with, is it not? Was Adam not in a garden? Did he not have a choice to make? Will you or will you not obey me as it relates to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Now, of course, God is sovereign. God did not force Adam to take the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam had to decide whether he would obey or not. And therefore, he did not. And all of humanity was fallen. Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, has the same freedom here. He has to make a decision. Will I obey God or will I not obey God? And of course, we understand that his heart is to do the Father's will. MacArthur comments, he says, the father sent the son to the cross, but he did not force him to go. Jesus was here asking if avoiding the cross were possible within the father's redemptive plan and purpose. I like that because what I hear in that is that Jesus has a choice, but God is sovereign at the same time, and Jesus wants to submit to his will. He has to be, he has to be obedient to the father. He must be obedient to the father. Understand, the first obstacle was the Brook Kidron, where Jesus was reminded of the blood that he would shed for mankind, where he would become the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That bloody water was a reminder, no doubt the devil there, reminding Jesus, you will pay if you cross this brook. And Jesus moves forward. He chooses to do the Father's will. There's a partnership here in the sovereignty of God and what God wants to do in man and what man must do as it relates to the Father. Adam chose to disobey, 
And he sinned. Jesus chooses to obey, and thus he brings life. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, that Adam was, was, was given life, but Jesus came to give us life. Paraphrased. Don't quote me on that, but it's, it's there. That's what he was saying. There's two Adams. Jesus is the last Adam. Adam is the first Adam. Both have a choice. Both have the opportunity to disobey or obey the Father. What is Jesus asking? That, what, what, what is this cup that Jesus speaks of? What, what does it mean? In the Old Testament, this cup is referred to as the wrath of God. Psalm 75, 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to dregs. Isaiah 51, 17, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Israel, or Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And Jeremiah 25, 15, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Jesus Christ is about to be baptized with a baptism of suffering that no man has ever experienced in the history of the world where he will become the Lamb of God and the wrath of God, that cup, will be poured upon him full strength. God will relinquish nothing in that moment. He will pour out the wrath of, his, uh, of God upon the sin of the world, of the world upon one man. Now, you might recall the way the temple works. When you brought a lamb, you know, there were probably, it would represent your family or, or a group of 10 people. And they would bring that lamb during Passover to the temple. And uh, by the way, they would take that lamb into their house for four days, become friends with that lamb. Then they would bring it in there, slit his throat, and slay him that he might cover their sin. You know, when they would bring the lamb in, it only covered, it only covered sin. Jesus Christ, this wrath that will be poured out upon him will take away the sin of the world. There is a different judgment that happens there. The lambs of boats and goals can, goats can only cover sin. The lamb, the blood of Jesus Christ takes away our sin. And it is amazing. And Jesus is saying, Father, if there's any other way. The Bible tells us that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That is the great exchange, folks. He did that for you. In this garden, it begins where he is praying to his father if there is any other way. And he asks him three times. I find that interesting too. Why three times? Why does Jesus pray three times? I mean, he's God and he's fully man. He has insight. He clearly can perceive thoughts. He can do all kinds of different things. Why is he asking the father three times? Well, I believe the answer comes from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. Here's what it says. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to, be, to, save, from, uh, to, him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because his, of his res, rever, reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation. Listen, to all who obey him, to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Here's what I believe is the reason why Jesus comes and he prays three times and the Father answers him the same every time and the reason for that is he is being taught obedience in the moment. He's being taught obedience. That's what it just said. Jesus was taught obedience. He just wasn't inherently obedient. He was taught obedience. He had to obey the word of God, just like you and I have to obey the word of God. Therefore, he is a high priest that can sympathize with your weaknesses. He understands he's, was, he was like you. He was tempted in every way that you're tempted. He also had to obey and he learned it. It just didn't come to him naturally. He had to choose to submit himself, to humble himself to the will of God. And so do you. You have to obey. 
If you want to follow him, you must obey him. Jesus said you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That is a command. If you want to follow me, this is what you must do. Deny yourself. It's no longer about you. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You must take up your cross. Jesus, I will do whatever it is that you call me to do, even give my life up for you. And you must follow him wherever he goes. That is the call. How does it come? Through simple obedience. Simply walking the path that he laid out for you. And of course, he gives you the faith to do it. He fills you with the faith that you need to do these things. But Jesus learned obedience just like you and I learned obedience. Now, we don't get an indication anywhere here that the Father ever responds to Jesus. We see him respond at the baptism of Jesus where he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. We see him respond at the transfiguration where he says, this is my son in whom I'm well well pleased. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in the darkest hour, we don't see the skies open up and the Father say, Jesus, this is the son. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. What we hear is the Father's silence, perhaps. And maybe that's the problem with the will of God in your life is you're mad at God because you're hearing silence. But perhaps the reason you're hearing silence is because God already told you what to do. He's simply waiting for you to obey him. Jesus asked the Father, is there any other way? Now, we don't have an indication. I mean, you know, some manuscripts state that that the Father sends an angel to minister to Jesus. It's not in all the manuscripts. Don't know if that happened or not. It's in parentheses in Luke chapter 22, verses 40, verse 43 and 44 there. You can look it up. Don't, that wasn't in the, all of the original text, so don't know if that happened or not. But it's worth considering that maybe the reality is the Father already spoke to the Son about what the plan was. And Jesus was simply being human here and just saying, Father, is there any other way? And then on the third time, he recognizes, okay. Now, here's a lesson in prayer. You can ask more than once. Jesus did. You can ask more than once. You can be steadfast in your prayer, but also, as you're praying for the same thing, keep your ear to the ground, and maybe the Lord's already told you what you need to hear. Maybe he's already told you, Lord, should I take this job? What is my will for you? What have I told you about what I want you to do? Does it fit within those parameters? The will of God is pretty simple. We complicate it because we don't want to obey him. That's the reality. It's the rebellion in our heart. I don't want to do that, so maybe I'll ask God if there's another way. And then he keeps pointing me back to that way, but I'll keep asking him. Anybody feel that? (laughs) Listen, Jesus knows what the will of God is. He already understands this, and yet he prays three times. This is how we face our battles, folks. Depression, despair, sorrow, sadness, whatever it is, take it before the Lord in prayer. Jesus did. Look at how his disciples are fending, though. Jesus comes to them. He returns to his faithful friends there, expecting to find them on their knees, pleading with God for him on his behalf, and he finds them sleeping. That seems a lot like me. Seems a lot like what I would be doing in that moment. I'm thankful that Jesus doesn't resent me because I fail even in his darkest moment. He doesn't resent his disciples and say, oh, you fools. Because they're not failing him. The prayer that he's asking them to pray is not for Jesus. It's for them. Jesus understands, I'm about to face the the greatest trial I've ever faced in my life. But so are they. And he says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he comes back and he finds them asleep. Three times. He understands what awaits them in just a few moments. And yet they're sleeping. 
Listen, I find this peculiarly, peculiarly true in my own life. As I'm battling temptations, I'm asking the Lord why, and he says, because you're sleeping. Wake up. Pray. Watch. You're not guarding your heart. If you're struggling with something today, if there's sin in your life and you're trying to understand where does the temptation come, you must watch and pray for it. Jesus doesn't say do this after the fact. He says before you enter the trial, watch and pray and you'll be successful. This is something that you should have a discipline in your life. Every morning you wake up, the moment you wake up, you should be watching and praying for temptation because it's going to come. It will come at you guaranteed because Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 through 9, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter understood this because he had fell asleep three times. And now he understands that I have to be sober-minded. I have to be watchful. I need to be in prayer because there is temptation coming because I have an adversary, the devil, who is like a roaring lion seeking to devour me. And that is true for you every day of your life. And he knows what you struggle with. He's not dangling things out in front of you that you don't struggle with. He knows what you're, 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 you're weak in, and therefore he gives you those temptations and those weaknesses. And the question is, are you prepared for it? Are you ready? Jesus says, be ready. Pray. Watch that you might not enter into temptation. I love what Peter said here in, in the last part of that verse in 1 Peter 8, 5, 8. He says also, the verse 9 there, that we should pray for the brotherhood who are being persecuted in the world. Like we shouldn't just, we should get up and we should be praying that we wouldn't enter into temptation, but we should also be praying that our brothers and sisters in Christ might not enter into temptation. It's called unity in the body. It's called caring about my brother more than I care about myself. I'm getting on my knees. I'm going to do battle for them because I care about whether they fail in temptation or not. And if we're sleeping... We really don't care at all. Jesus is saying the spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We don't want to pray. We don't like to pray. Dare we say it's boring. This is the father you're speaking to through his son who bled and died for you that you would spend a couple moments communicating with him, loving him through this avenue of prayer that he's given you, asking him to protect you. What I'm telling you is that your life ought to be rooted in prayer, Christian. Oh, we know this already. Then do it. Be obedient to the Lord. You want to see God move in your life? Get on your knees. You're not going to see him move the way that he wants to move unless you're on your knees. You're preparing yourself. You're watchful. You're sober-minded. And you are preparing your heart for the things that are coming because they're coming. Temptation is coming. This week, you're going to face something. You're going to face a temptation. And the reality is you can begin to prepare for it today, right now. You get on your knees and you say, Lord, I don't want to fail you. Help me. You start to pray. Listen, rather than do anything else, just get on your knees, Christian. Just begin to pray. You want to move God to move in your life? Then get on your knees and pray. Can I say pray? Pray. He wants us to pray. He comes to his disciples and they're doing what we do, sleep. They're spiritually asleep. And they're about to face the greatest trial of their life, man. Back to John chapter 18. This is where we pick it up in verse 2. Here comes the trial for all of them. Judas, now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers with the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there 
with lanterns and torches and weapons. Here we have Judas show up. He is the betrayer. And here he brings with him a band of soldiers. In the Greek there, that word band, it, it, it can vary in terms of, it, it's, a, it's a word that declares a size, but it can vary in its meaning. So it can mean, you know, it can mean a couple hundred, it can mean a couple thousand. It, it, it just varies the way that it's used in the Greek. Many believe that the way that it was written here is it's meant to represent a cohort of Roman soldiers, which would mean 600 soldiers. Now, every movie that I've seen that depicts the Garden of Gethsemane, like some lofty-looking dudes show up with, you know, things like a pitchforks and lanterns, and they're like, you know, there's like 12 of them. There was like hundreds of these guys that show up to get Jesus. That's the picture. That's the threat of Jesus Christ to this to not only the Romans, but also to the Jews. They show up with well-equipped soldiers because they are not taking any chances this time, folks. They have had this pre-arrangement with Judas. Judas had already gone way before, the gar- way before this evening. He had gone earlier in the week. He had pre-arranged this time when he would give them a moment where they could apprehend Jesus. And here it says that, Judas knew the place. It wasn't like Jesus said, hey, we're going to go to the garden later. We'll meet you over there. He just knew that this was a place that Jesus went to often. And so he knew that evening, very good likelihood that Jesus would be there. And so he says, guys, he runs back to the the religious leaders and he says, now is the time. He's got his money already. He's ready to roll. Let's take these guys. They go and they bring lanterns and all. Now, what I need you to understand is that during this time uh, of the year in Israel, there's always full moons. It's, it's you know, the, the moon is just booming light everywhere. That's why Jesus could see the brook before he crossed it. These guys bring lanterns and torches. Why? Because they know, they, they believe that Jesus is going to flee. They believe that he's going to run. They believe that he's going to hide somewhere. And so they're ready to light up the Mount of Olives to find him. So they've got these torches. They also are equipped with swords because they don't know whether or not there will be other people there. They needed to isolate Jesus, but Jesus always had people around him. So they bring swords, and they're ready to battle. They will slay people if they get in the way. They will apprehend Jesus this time. Back to Matthew chapter 26. Man, your fingers are getting some work today. Praise God. Matthew 26, verse 48. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and then he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. One of the most heinous ways to betray a friend is with a kiss. It's a sign of intimacy. Now, you know, a sign of respect would have been maybe Judas kissing his hand. That would have been a sign of respect in this time. But Judas comes up and kisses his cheek, which is a sign of intimate friendship. And look how Jesus responds to him. Friend, do what you came to do. Do what you came to do. Now, this is my own conjecture. Take it for what it's worth. I don't know that it's worth anything. But I believe in this moment when Jesus says friend, as Judas is trying to associate him as friend of Jesus, that Jesus is saying, friend, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you want to do this? You sure you want to betray me like this, Judas? Giving him opportunity once again. Back to John chapter 18, verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell on the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that, had, that, that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Solomon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant 
and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Again, in parentheses in your Bible, maybe, because that wasn't original in the text. Verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into, his she- into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup of the Father has given me? Here again uh, uh, is, is John's account of what happened when Jesus was apprehended. It's a little different, but probably all these things happened at the same time. Jesus was betrayed by a kiss, but at the same token, when the band came up to him, Jesus simply says to them, whom do you seek? And check this out. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. No doubt with some confidence, a little bit of boldness, they got a band of soldiers behind them. They're ready to rock and roll. Jesus of Nazareth, that's who we're here for. And Jesus says, ego imei. And they literally stumble backward, fall down on their faces before the ground. Why? He just said, I am. He just said, I am God here. This is God standing in your presence. Now, whom do you seek? Ego imei, he says, I am. You can drop the he out. It doesn't belong there. I am. I am. (laughs) Imagine this. After falling on your face, One gospel says like dead men. You get up. You come to whatever that looks like. You get up. (laughs) You're dusting yourself off. And then he says again. Now who do you seek? Now maybe a little bit more shaky. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, boom, I am. Ego imei. Understand what you're doing. I think in this moment, once again, because God's heart is that no man would perish, but all would come to repentance. I believe Jesus in this moment is literally reaching out to all those who would apprehend him. He's saying, I am God, but I will freely give myself up. And it's like, you know, when he says, well, I'm the one you seek. It's almost like this to me. It's almost like this. I'm freely going. Just let them go, he says. Greater love is no man than this than would give up his life for his own friends. He would give himself up for you, for me, for his disciples. He gave himself up. Peter at this point goes in full ninja mode. Literally, if he had nunchucks, he'd be doing that stuff, you know. But he pulls out his sword and he just takes a swipe. There's 600 soldiers there. What are you doing, Peter? You got one sword. Remember back earlier in the night when Jesus said, one of you will betray me? And what did Peter say? Not me. I will not betray you, Lord. I wonder in this moment if he's still wondering, could it be me? So he (laughs) whips out the sword. He takes a lash because we know just in a few hours he will deny Christ three times, just as Jesus says. Peter is acting out in the flesh here, folks, just like you and I do. When we become fearful, when we encounter a difficult situation, we can easily jump into the flesh and act out in the flesh. And Jesus, probably the same response, put your sword down. What are you doing? Why would you respond this way, Pete? One of the gospels, I think Matthew going on in um, verses 53 and 54 says, Don't you know I could call down angels from heaven in this moment? Don't you know that I could have heaven come down and protect me if I really needed that? Listen, God doesn't need your acts in the flesh, Christian. He he can perfectly protect you the way that he wants to without your help. He doesn't need your help. If you stay in the spirit, then you're going to respond correctly. But if you lash out in the flesh, you're going you're gonna to do what he did, Peter did here, and Jesus is going to have to heal some dude. Takes the ear, puts it back on Malchus. <laughs> no doubt. Could you imagine him being, man, I'd probably become a believer at that point. I don't know. He just put my ear back on my head. Jesus says to Peter, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? I also believe in this moment that Peter's response was also a temptation from the enemy for Jesus. 
Jesus, we may be able to fight our way out of this. And what does Jesus respond to the temptation? He's prayed up. He's ready. He says, shall I not drink of the cup? I just prayed three times. I know the cup cannot pass from me. I want to surrender to the will of God in my life. I want to be obedient. And therefore, put your sword away. Let's, let's go. Let's move forward. And that's how Jesus responds in the garden. Very different from the way Adam responded to temptation in the Garden of Eden. Adam was thinking about himself. Adam succumbed to the temptation in the Garden of Eden because he thought that God was holding something back as a result of the way that the enemy deceived him. And he said, shall you surely die if you eat of this tree? No. You don't really think God meant that. Go ahead, take it. Maybe God's holding back on me. Maybe I should take this and see what happens, and you see what happens. Really, we'll blame the, the woman, but uh, I can't do that because I'm up here and you're there, and it would be awkward if I said that it was a woman's fault, and then I would have to go home and answer to my wife. So, you know. But Adam freely chose to eat. He did. He disobeyed God. And therefore, sin entered the world. Listen, you're living in a garden, Christian. There is a garden that you have been planted in. The question is, will you walk faithfully by being obedient to the Lord or will you choose to walk away from God and, and the choice is yours? He will not force you to obey him. That's the point. Jesus had freedom to do what he wanted here. He had freedom to make the choices, whatever choice he wanted to, and yet, the very same time, his heart was so, so dedicated to God that he said, I want to do your will. I don't care what it costs me. May that be your heart. May you be willing to walk in the garden faithfully because you're only here for a season. As Dan reminded us earlier today, we're only here for a season, Christian. It's short. Life is a vapor, man. It's here today, gone tomorrow. And then you will stand before God and you will give an account for your life. And I want to hear him say, man, you were faithful in the garden, Tim. You were obedient to my word. You followed my spirit. Enter into your rest. Not because of my works, but my works are a result of what Christ has done for me on the cross and given me the freedom to walk faithfully with him. It's the only reason. Couldn't do it if Jesus didn't go to the cross. Are you going to be obedient today? Listen, pray that you would be. Pray. Father, we thank you for the, your word this morning, Lord. And we thank you for being obedient, Jesus. For being obedient. Your word tells us even to death. Jesus, you held nothing back because you came to do the will of the Father who sent you. We have the same Father. We have the same mission. Lord, would you give us the ability, would you help us, God, to die to ourselves and to be obedient to your Spirit in every aspect, Lord, in this garden that you've planted us in. Lord, we're asking today that you prepare us, Lord. You keep us. Lord, that you, you strengthen us, that we might not succumb to temptation, Lord. We know that the enemy is out there waiting and he wants to devour, and yet you've given us the spirit within us, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is in us. If we believe in you, and so we ask, Lord, you would equip us today you would help us to be praying people, that we would take every battle to our knees, Lord, and present them to you, that we might be faithful in it. God, I'm just asking you even right now, Lord, to just blanket this place with a heart of prayer. Lord, that you would help us to be praying people, not just for ourselves, but as Peter said, for our brothers who are suffering across the world, who are giving up their lives for your namesake. 
God, bind us together as a uni in unity, Lord, as a body. Help us to fight our battles on our knees and to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, Lord. We ask for your spirit to just to move in these last few minutes, Lord, and help us to respond the way that you would call us to. For your honor, Lord, for your glory, for your namesake. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.